And that is such a bullshit way of trying to approach business, right? If that's who you want to be, great. Be, be that person. But for me, my job as a, as a business owner and as an entrepreneur is to use the tools and, and the um, resources at my disposal to make the lives of our team better, to make the community a better place to, to, be, to live in. Without sounding cheesy, you want to leave a positive impact on the world. And that was one of the most difficult times in my life. I mean, I don't think I was ever diagnosed with, oh, I know I wasn't ever like diagnosed with any form of like depression or anything, but you, you hit a wall where it's like, I don't want to exist because there's, you know, what am I doing? You know, and then you add the additional stress of you're not making money. You're not, you feel like you're, you know, it's so uncertain and all these things. Right. So mm-hmm. that was one of the, the biggest challenges that I faced. And that was, you know, the first year after starting this thing. But yeah, there was definitely some really, really scary and questionable times in the forming of this, of Six Sigma, where it's like, we're too deep into this thing that still might not work. And I don't really have a fallback. So we're just going to keep dredging down this, down this kind of road of there's kind of a saying and it originally I was it was told to me by a project manager but I think it applies for entrepreneurship that if you want to be an entrepreneur you have to think about it a lot like driving a car in the fog and you have to be the type of person that's okay with the ambiguity that comes with driving a car in the fog hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the YT podcast here on the YT podcast we're all about changing the narrative and rewriting the book about what it takes to be successful for those aspiring to be on and currently traveling the entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial journey. Here on the Y2 Podcast, I find and interview everyday successful entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders and dive into their stories to discover what it takes to actually get started and be successful on their journeys. This podcast is meant really for anyone and everyone who aspires to do more than they're doing now, but perhaps doesn't know where to start who is overwhelmed with the prospect of change, or has either been told by somebody else, or maybe themselves, that they just can't do it. This is all about uncovering the real stories by people like you, who have taken those first few steps and are well on their way to success in order to help shed light on how you can live that life as well. Now, before I introduce you to today's guest, I need to take a quick minute and thank the Y2 Podcast's official sponsor, YZ. YZ is an easy-to-use online training software that makes it so simple to create and deliver online learning. I actually love this product so much, I reached out to these guys and wanted to work with them as I see the power of the system for clients. The online training software is very flexible and you can use it to automate a whole range of tasks in your business. For example, you can manage all of your employee training, train customers and partners in your products, track licenses and qualifications of your staff, create and sell online courses, capture more leads with free online courses, and so much more. Make sure you jump over to their website, yz.com, that's w-y-z-e-d.com, to check out some videos and even get started with your own free 14-day trial. And as always, let them know I sent you when you head on over. But back to the show. And today's guest is Jason Hamburg, co-founder and production manager at Six Sigma, a video production company that specializes in professional, creative, and unique video production based out of my very own hometown, Prince George, Canada. 
Now, I've known Jason for, for a long time now, as we both went to the University of Northern British Columbia to get our human resources degrees. While pursuing our degrees, I had the opportunity to get to know Jason not only through the classes we took, but also as we both threw ourselves into a lot of extracurricular activities outside of school, hoping to propel ourselves into long and fulfilling HR careers. But when we graduated, Jason did something really unexpected. You see, while I'd entered the HR world with all the momentum behind me, I watched Jason firsthand take a radical pivot in his career to start Six Sigma. At the time, I'll be honest with you, I actually thought he was conducting career suicide by making such a dramatic step away from HR and not capitalizing on all the momentum that we had worked so hard to build. Now, while we may think of video today as being this ubiquitous medium that literally besieges us at every twist and turn, this was all before that all really took off. And he was doing it in a community that isn't quite known as an early adopter of technology. I mean, Prince George just ain't quite your San Francisco is is kind of what I'm trying to say here. But during the course of this interview, I actually began to realize a critical part of a story that really stunned me. And I actually think when you listen to it, you'll actually hear the point when it hits me. But this one piece of the puzzle came in and began to reshape how I thought about his career. And I actually really think this will change how you think about other people's or maybe even your own career now. Now, if you like what you heard so far and you want to hear more stories like Jason's, please make sure you subscribe to the Y2 Podcast wherever you're listening to this. And it would be awesome if you can leave a review, especially on iTunes. At the end of the day, these stories are meant to educate and inspire you to take meaningful change in your life. And there's plenty of episodes of the Y2 podcast coming in the future, as well as a secret new project to be released very soon. But you have to make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out. Make sure to follow the Y2 podcast website at projecty2.com. That's projecty, the let number two, .com. Special thanks to Jason Price for editing the Y2 podcast. And as always, with that being said, let's get today's chat. Jay, welcome to the Y2 Podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate uh, it. It's my absolute pleasure. So this is, uh, this is round two. Uh, I made a bit of a boo-boo, so I just want to apologize for <laughs> having to make you go through this first half again of the podcast. But, uh, okay. but with that being said, um, I want to really thank you again for your time and, and the opportunity to, to sit down with you. This is, this is a conversation that I've wanted to have for a, a really long time, but it's, it's taken me a while and this podcast is really testament to the journey I've been on to really fully be able to understand the questions that I need to ask and, and really be in the right frame of mind to approach today's chat. So I, again, I, I really want to thank you for your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, man. I'm stoked to be here. Excellent. So just for listeners, um, today's interview is going to be really different than what we've heard before. And I want to just spend a bit of a minute to sort of preface today's conversation for that. So uh, you and I, Jay, we met back in, uh, back in university. What was that? Second or, uh, second or third year? I can't remember. Yeah. Dude, I don't know. I would assume probably second, maybe third year. Yeah. Third year is probably when we really started to actually know who each other were. I was pretty... I was a pretty absent-minded human. Uh, 
those first couple of years. Uh, look, it, uh, it was a long time ago now, and I try not to think too often about how long ago it was. But um, yeah, we, we met back when we were doing our HR degrees at the uh, University of Northern British Columbia in our mutual hometown of uh, Prince George, Canada. Um, and I know that while we were taking the classes together, I really feel like we got to know each other because you and I were both heavily involved in things outside of the classroom as well related to, uh, to, to HR. We were both on a local HR association. We both competed in uh, one of the largest business competitions in Western Canada and uh, a lot more. And I know you even went on to get your professional HR certificate. And ultimately, you ended up doing a stint in HR and uh, for your family company, which I actually ended up taking over for you, which is something I'm sure we'll come back to a little bit later. But what I found really crazy is that after we graduated and you had built all this unbelievable men- momentum, I mean, you were very, very smart, top of our class, highly regarded. You had amazing people skills, uh, very innovative, just, you know, you had absolutely everything going for you. And as you had all this momentum to land your second uh, job in HR, where, again, easy no-brainer, you, you basically went and did a complete 180 and started Six Sigma, your company you work for now, the, uh, you started a video production company. But not only did you do that, you started it in a small blue-collar town in northern Canada with a style and approach to video that is vastly different than is available before. So just to paint people a bit of a picture, the, the standard for commercials and video production was basically your local sort of small town TV ads you still might see today. Um, you know, social media was only just really starting to embrace video content. And on top of that, again, especially as starting all of this in a small town in Northern BC, not really the first name in early adopters and technology or trends. So, I mean, I was shocked to see you not only do that, but on top of that, after all these years, how you've managed to build a good sized team and strike an incredible balance to your life and career at the young age of 27. And the funny thing, I think, as I really sat back and thought about today's chat, is I recently interviewed uh, Michael Ellis, who's head of culture for Vino Mofo. It's an online uh, wine retailer based here in Melbourne, Australia. And the thing that shocked me about Mikey's journey is that prior to Vino Mofo, he had basically no HR experience, but he had managed to help grow the team from about 40 to, I think they're well in excess of 120 now all over the world. They're winning awards and really they've created one of the most sought after places to work. And that's a lot, you know, from a city of 4 million people. And then we have you who I could have easily imagined being that logical candidate for Mikey's role. I mean, if you had asked me a few years ago where I thought your career was going, I would have described what I just described for Mikey and, and you being in that role. But ultimately, you ended up doing that 160, following your passion and against seemingly all odds. I know there's a few people doubting you and your ability to pull this off. You started this video production company. And after having really sat back, it's only now, after all these years, that I can begin to understand how you were looking at life and through a far better lens than I had. And that's really why I wanted to connect back up to you today and have today's chat. So fairly long-winded, a fairly long-winded introduction, but uh, again, I'm so excited to sit down with you and, and finally answer this question that's been in somewhere or another in the back of my mind for a long time now, actually, a long time. Yeah. Wow, man. Thank you. Um, that's awesome. I appreciate there was some kind words. I was, I should copy and paste that into my LinkedIn profile, I think. <laughs> Please feel free. Yeah. Uh, 
but with that being said, um, before we you know dive into HR and before we dive into Six Sigma, we, we want to go back and to get to know a younger Jay before this all started. And you had uh, your first entrepreneurial stint was with a, a power broom. I'd love if you could take us a little bit through of uh, that story for us. Yeah. So um, when you asked me about kind of what's something that maybe describes you and now, you know, being where I'm at, I guess, in life and the type of role that I, I've kind of taken on. I thought back to this one spring and for, um, from some of your listeners from Australia, they may not, um, (laughs) fully be able to, or maybe will have never thought of this being an issue, but in, uh, Northern BC where I grew up and where you grew up, um, the local municipalities use sand and gravel to basically keep traction on the roads in the winter. Um, you just throw, throw a bunch of rocks down essentially and it kind of helps, helps the ice. The one downfall of that, of course, is that in the spring when uh, things start to melt, all the snow that's been plowed off the roads into people's front yards um, essentially melts and those rocks are left just sitting in, in people's front yards. So uh, one of the byproducts of, of the winter melt is or the spring melt is the need to essentially get those rocks off the lawn back onto the street so that when things start to, the roads start to be swept, we actually, uh, we actually can, you know, have a front yard. So mm-hmm. um, there's a few different ways of doing it, but one of the most common and probably most efficient ways is what's basically like a power broom. And it's essentially like a weed whacker, a whipper snipper, but instead of the, the cutting head on the front, you have this big rubber paddle that kind of uh, pushes the rocks off the lawn for you. And uh, yeah, one summer, or I guess one spring, my dad had rented it. I was probably, I would say maybe 13, 14 at the time. I'd had a few kind of like, you know, oddball gigs and stuff. And I'd always kind of had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit with my, my dad was an entrepreneur and um, had a logging contract for a number of years and um, among other businesses. And I said, Hey, you know, you're done with that. It's, it's early in the morning still, and you have it for 24 hours. Is there any chance I can take it? And I'm going to go and try and do some, do some neighbor or some front yards in the neighborhood and see if I can make some money. So he was happy to, to let me have it. And I went, and I think I maybe did one, maybe two front yards before I realized that the amount of time I was spending versus how much people wanted to pay me, because in the neighborhood I grew up, we had pretty, pretty big front yards or pretty big yards in general. Mm-hmm. So my mind started to go to, you know what? I could probably go over to my, there was another um, neighborhood called Ridgeview and it was still a pretty, um, I would say like it was like a middle to middle upper class kind of neighborhood, but their yards were a lot smaller. So I figured I could, I could basically charge the same and do the yards in, you know, half or a quarter of the time. So I went over there and I, I did one or two yards. And then one of my friends who lived in the neighborhood, I thought, Hey, I should go and talk to Hayden and maybe he can help me. I was starting to kind of, I don't know, get tired a little bit as hard work, <laughs> especially when you're like a tiny little kid or whatever. And, um, I kind of pitched the idea. I said, Hey, I'll split this money with you. One of us can kind of do sales. We can go up ahead and, and wheel and deal with people. And the other person can be kind of keeping up on the back and, and doing yards. Cause it only took us about 15 minutes. And 
I guess looking back now, I realized that at that time he was, he was like, I'm not talking to people. We don't know any of these people. That's I'm not <laughs> going to go and ask them. That seems insane. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, I don't have any problem with it. I can go and kind of sell people on this idea if you just want to run the broom. And I guess it was at that point that I kind of realized two things. I'm, I'm fully comfortable and I, and I actually kind of get a good kick out of the sales element uh, of entrepreneurship. But also, um, if you can have a team with diverse skill sets um, that have kind of their comfort being in the areas that they want to be, you know, working in, um, you can get a lot more accomplished. So hmm. in my current role now, you know, I'm a production coordinator, a production manager, and I kind of lead business development. And even back then, uh, that was kind of the role that I gravitated to. It was more of the, how do I think about ideas and how do I cultivate new business versus how do I actually execute? And it's about working with a team to kind of get the job done. Yeah. So yeah, man, I don't know. We killed it. Like I, I, I was telling you, I should probably some days just go back to being a lawn <laughs> sweeper guy. Cause I probably make better money at it. We did pretty good that, uh, that one afternoon. I think I probably made enough for the whole summer of slushies and going to movies, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, the thing I love about that story too, is just how intuitive it, it came across as well, right? Like you weren't sitting there studying and reading a, a manual about, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get somebody to help me. Let me, let me learn about leadership and let me learn about all these sorts of things. You're just kind of like, I like doing that. He likes doing that. He's good at that. I'm good at this. And we're making a lot of money. So it's, <laughs> it's a very like, well, yeah, we can get a lot more done if we, if we work together at it, I guess. So yeah, yeah, kind of the path of just resist, path of least resistance through. So, no, I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you telling that story. Um, I suppose moving forward a bit, as we mentioned at the top, you and I met um, when we were both doing our our HR degree, and you know, I I find it incredibly fascinating. Everybody has their own kind of interesting story about if they went to university, why they end up choosing the degree that they did. Um, you know chance experience or, you know, somebody said something at the right time or, or whatever it might be. Um, I suppose to yourself, why did you end up choosing uh, human resources where we inevitably met? Yeah. So, I mean, when I graduated from university or from, sorry, when I graduated from high school, it's, it's so insane that to think of how much different of a person I was graduating university versus high school that we ask these kids who are like 18 years old to be like, figure like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, looking back on that now, like that is terrible. Yeah. Like it's a terrible idea. So when I graduated from high school, I wanted to be a writer and that was like what my thing was. I wanted to write, um, in a mag in dirt bike magazines. Mm-hmm. I'm like a big, I'm pretty passionate about dirt biking. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a good writer. I do well in English. I would like to be kind of pursue that career. The only problem with that coming from a family with, you know, fairly conservative parents who were willing to help me get through university. If it meant <laughs> there was kind of like a, for sure at the end, you know, and yeah for sure of becoming a writer for a dirt bike magazine definitely wasn't there at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I was kind of steered towards, you know, what will help you go to school, but you're going to take classes at, at UNBC. It's, it's a local university. Um, and will help pay for your classes. You can live at home. So I started to go to school, but to be quite honest, like 
you know, I had that vision of what I wanted to do in my head, but it wasn't um, kind of the life that I was living in. In my first year and even maybe my first first two years, my um, results in school really reflected the fact that I wasn't that stoked. You know, I was, mm-hmm. my GPA in my first year was 1.4. And so for those who don't know, like, that's bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a pass, I think, just a pass? Barely, yeah. Like, yeah. I think I was maybe three for five in my classes. Like, two of them <laughs> I failed. So, it was not good. And... It wasn't until maybe, yeah, like I said, maybe sometime in, the, in my second year of schooling when I was actually at a bank appointment. I was going to buy some RRSPs with some money I had made through a, through a business that uh, me and my dad were kind of doing at the time. But I had made this money and we were doing RRSPs and the, bank, the lady at the bank was asking me like, you know, how's, how's school going? How are you enjoying it? And I don't know what it was about her, but she was, I felt like I could maybe kind of talk to her, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, it sucks. I hate <laughs> my life every day. Like I don't, I hate it. Cause at the time I was taking some business classes and taking some English and stuff, but I really didn't have like an end goal. I didn't have an end mission. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, she kind of laughed, but also I told her how I wanted to be a writer, but I was taking these business classes, but I didn't want to do business cause I didn't want to be a, you know, a desk jockey and continue to hate my life well into my sixties. And she actually gave me a really amazing, I don't know what it was, but it just kind of like cued me, cued me and kind of opened up my eyes to the fact that, you know, getting a business degree didn't mean I had to wear a suit and kind of be that cog in the wheel. Mm -hmm. Um, All it was, was essentially helping me look at the world in a certain way, think about situations in a certain way and kind of, um, give me a bit of a toolkit that I could use for a whole bunch of different applications. Mm-hmm. And after that conversation, that's kind of what I guess piqued my interest a little bit in, um, in the business side of things. You know, I started to think of my passions and think of how business could relate to, you know, working for, maybe I'm not writing for that magazine, but maybe I'm, um, you know, selling advertisements for that and just kind of thinking about things in more of a business sense and, and understanding that it could be applied to so many different avenues. Right. So that got me kind of excited about it. And she, of course, being a banker said, Hey, you should do accounting or finance because you know, that's, that's, (laughs) so I did some, I kind of took my first two accounting and finance courses, I think in my second year and dude, I sucked. I was so (laughs) bad at it. And it was, it was, people around me were finding it so easy. And I was like, holy man, like, this is insane. I'm terrible at this. So I ended up kind of just being a bit of a floater. I knew I wasn't going to do that. I didn't really know about marketing or really what that meant or about human resources or about international business. I was just kind of taking courses and I kind of had all these little side gigs on the go at the time. Um, Such as, can you give us some examples of what those were? Yeah. So like I was another thing I was really passionate about was skiing and I was trying to develop relationships in the ski industry, um, to do a better job in helping, um, you know, like company reps represent Northern British Columbia or, um, you know, trying to kind of develop business plans that would, uh, you know, improve distribution of, 
as soon as I put stuff into the realm of something that I enjoyed, mm. I could, I could think really well about it. You know, like if you asked me to build a marketing plan for bread, I don't know <laughs> the first place to start, you know, but change bread with ski boots or change bread with dirt bike goggles. And all of a sudden I'm on it, you know, like yeah. I can, I can figure that out. So yeah, I was doing that and I actually, sorry, getting to the HR side of things. I had taken maybe one, maybe two HR classes and at the same time, didn't really get much of a kick out of that because the instructors that I had were really maybe focused on the specifics and didn't necessarily do a great job in selling how, Mm -hmm. how, uh, powerful human resource management could be. Mm -hmm. But, uh, there was pretty pivotal moment in my university career where I, I had sat down and I was complaining with this guy who's kind of a mutual friend of a friend. And I was telling him about just how, dumb this HR class I was taking was and turns out he was like the living legend of human resources at <laughs> at UMBC like he was so good at it and he still to this day is he's an amazing um you know recruiter and he was like whoa 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 man like you're you're totally missing the point of what human resource management can be Mm-hmm. and uh, he kind of gave me like the elevator pitch and I started to kind of look more into it and it was funny I had done Speaking of in my, in my intro, you kind of said how I did a 180 from an HR guy to a video guy. I did a 180 from a like, I hate HR to I'm going to be like the raddest HR person that's ever existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was probably, you know, late second year, early third year of university. And from that point, I was just, I pursued it like hard to, because now I understood everything that it could be. Um, not only, I guess, from within an HR department, but for a business, everything that HR could accomplish. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that was basically the real kickoff point for that HR career. It may have been, uh, that was probably the, yeah, the pivotal moment, I guess, was that conversation with Matt. Yeah, give a bit of a shout out here. Matt Shaw was the, uh, the guy, wasn't it? It was Matt Shaw. Yeah, yeah. Shaw. So Look, he sold me and uh, it was great. I'm ha- I, I owe, I owe a piece of who I am to that conversation for sure. Yeah. I, I love hearing stories like that. I think it's, it's amazing how sometimes we can sort of drift, but all it takes is a few minutes with somebody to sort of say something a little bit different. And it's incredible. The, the, the catalyst of change that can all of a sudden happen in our lives is that, that I like to think of it as like that one cog that the machine's spinning, but you just need that one cog in there. And all of a sudden you just activate a whole new part or perspective or, or fundamentally change the function of it. Um, I love stuff like that. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. And that makes a bit of sense too, I suppose. I, hadn't, I actually didn't even know that story about you. Um, and that makes a bit of sense then why you were so passionate while there were a few people doing RHR on that trajectory with us. Um, there weren't many people who were as driven as you in terms of both in the class and outside of the class pursuing it. But it makes sense that if you were looking at it from a, a bit of a broader future point of view and given to the personality that you are, it makes sense why you were all of a sudden just 100% in that and, um, and skilling yourself up and, and having a bit more of that bigger picture, I guess, in terms of what it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, the type of personality that I am. I get made fun of and people joke that I'm a phaser. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, what are you into now? You know, what phase are you in is what yeah. they always joke about. 
And phases can last like a summer or phases can last like, you know, several years. And the idea though, is that if I'm going to take something on, I'm not, I'm, I'm not excited and I don't want to be mediocre at them. Like I'm going to know everything about the history of that thing. I'm going to know everything about, um, you know, how it's evolved and how it's changing and where it's headed and how to be the absolute best at it. Mm -hmm. Not really for any other reason than that's just how I feel comfortable saying that I'm, I'm a HR person or I'm a dirt biker or I'm a, you know, skier or I'm a video person. If I'm not all in on something, I can't consider myself that person, I guess. Right. So maybe that's, that's kind of, uh, a little bit of what was driving me was, well, look, I got a, I got a late start on this whole HR thing. So I better really get it dialed in. Um, while it's my thing that I'm focused on. Yeah. It kind of reminded me when you said that, and, and I know we're actually going to quote this gentleman again later on, but Derek Sivers, have you, have you ever heard of Derek Sivers before? No, no, nah, he's a guy I definitely think you should check out. He's, I think he would resonate well. He's got a great book. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, he, Derek Sivers used to run a company called CD baby, but anyway, he's got a bit of a saying and it's either hell yeah or hell no. There's nothing in between. It's either I'm hell yeah. And I want to do it. Anything else that doesn't elicit that response, he just doesn't do it. And that yeah. ability to all of a sudden start to be very focused on the things that you enjoy, you're passionate about and your ability to put a huge amount of energy because you don't have these, yeah, okay. That sounds okay. Distractions, which you're not right. really hundred percent into and you probably don't really want to do. And that inevitably doesn't really net a return from any sort of point of view. But I love that you got that sort of like, hell yeah, hell no point of view. And it's yeah. funny too. One, one other thing I wanted to just stay there too, just to sort of paint a bit of a picture of who is Jason Hamburg for my listeners is when I met you, I think you were at your bow tie phase. Where- Dude, I was speaking of phases. Like I went through a fashion phase and again, yeah. You know, I'm, there's no going halfway on that. Like I was sending it, like if there was a GQ, new GQ that came out, I was like, okay, how do I look like that? So I was like, yeah, bow ties and pants that were too short and suspenders. And that was just, (laughs) again, that was kind of like, if I'm going to do something, if something interests me, I'm going to do it. I'm going all in, I guess. Like there's no sense in doing something kind of halfway because, yeah, you're not really going to get that full experience out of it, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm curious as well. Let's use the fashion one as an example and, and not for the sake of one I understand the fashion. I guess we should, also, we should also confirm with people now that I've worn the exact same t-shirt and pants combo for the last like five years. <laughs> you, you they should understand it. that I'm no longer in the fashion phase. So that's, <laughs> that's why you kind of uh, brought that point up. Yeah. Yeah, but but no, but I like I do want to go back to that. And again, not not to ask about the fashion, but because I have seen this part of your personality and and I and I love it. I don't think I've really come to appreciate the 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 other aspect though. But when you were wearing the fashion or wearing your sort of that hell yeah, I'm going to do this and other people are looking at you going like why are you dressing like this or why are you so devoted to this one thing? I mean, how do you feel when people are sort of like mocking you or criticizing you or judging you um, through those various sort of all on phases? I'd rather be, I'd rather be respected by the people in those worlds that I find interesting or I have respect for than give a shit about the people that are hating me from the outside. Mm. Right. 
So if someone, like I wanted to be at the point where if, you know, a fashion blogger was just happened to be at the school and they're like, damn, "Damn, that guy looks fly, you know, like he looks good. The same way that if I'm at a dirt bike track, I can like talk on the same level as like someone who works in the industry and kind of lives that life day in and day out because I'd rather, I'd, yeah, I'd rather have the respect from the people who I respect mm-hmm. than care about what people think who, not that I don't necessarily respect them, but their opinions about something that they don't understand shouldn't have as much weight as the people that do understand it. Right. Yeah. That makes sense without yeah. sounding like a pretentious dick. No, but I think, I think that is really critically important. Right. Um, and this is something even more, if I'll just speak from personal experience, I've, I've given too much of a fuck about other people who don't give a fuck about me think. Right. Um, and and unfortunately that's guided, I think a lot of decisions up until, up until the last few years of my life where I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do me, you know, and they're, they're going to do them. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really care. I'll certainly take feedback probably more than I probably should still, but at the same time, you just got to do you. So I suppose for yourself, um, you know, you were, you're full on in this. Um, so where did video come about? It, it seems a bit, you know, where did that sort of drop into in your life? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had mentioned earlier, like I was really into, uh, kind of action sports and stuff growing up. I mean, obviously dirt biking, I, I, that was like really what I was all about for, years and years and it still is a big part of my life but between that and um you know skateboarding skiing snowboarding kind of all of these these action sports things and a, and a huge element of those sports that's kind of different than um i guess more of the traditional ball and stick sports whether that's you know football or or hockey or baseball whatever it is is that it's not just about the results of the game there's there's people that make like livings as an athlete and all they do is like film videos and put those videos out and companies, you know, sponsor them. And so we kind of always had this, these big dreams of, you know, let's make a skateboard video and we'll send that to all these different companies and (laughs) they'll send us product and, you know, we'll send it to dirt bike companies and they'll give us stuff. And we were never really at that level, but at the same time, we we were still having a go at it. You know, we were, um, it was another piece of the creating a whole, um, creating yourself as that type of athlete. It was like, well, we need to, we need to have photos and video of ourselves because that's, that's part of who, what this culture is all about. Right. So, you know, we started, um, my parents kind of bought this like family recorder and it was funny because my parents were always pissed because the batteries were always dead. There was never, there was never any tape left because we just always filming dirt bike stuff. And it was always covered in dirt. Like every, like none of the hinges worked properly on it anymore. Cause it was just like so caked full of dirt, but we, yeah, we were just like, if we were going riding, we would bring the camera and like film and then make these like kind of crazy little edits on windows movie maker. And I was really fortunate that my next door neighbor um, at the time, he and I skateboarded. So we were making skateboard videos all the time. And he actually showed me how to like get the footage onto my computer. Cause at the time um, there wasn't, I was kind of at this weird moment where it was before film or sorry, it was after film, but it was really before like 
the digital age. Yeah, so, so it was like a memory thing built into the yeah, recorder, but it wasn't we, just... Yeah, we were, we were recording to tape, yet you, you did have computers to be able to like cut that tape up and, and kind of you know, transfer the footage over and make something relatively mm. easily once you kind of knew. But again, when you're like 12 years old, you don't really have the resources available to learn that super easily. So I was really fortunate that my neighbor, Steven, he knew how to do it and he showed me how to do it and was like willing to put up with this like 12 year old kid who's just like clinging <laughs> on to him, like well, older than. I, I think as well, I think as well too, just a bit of context and correct me if I'm wrong here, but if your life was trajectorying on the same as mine, you didn't, the internet wasn't really as big of a thing back then it wasn't i don't know did you were you googling stuff and trying to like research this stuff or was it really just your neighbor next door helping you out yeah it was like it was my neighbor i mean i i don't even think google was a thing like maybe yahoo or like msn or something but it wasn't really that that term like oh we'll just google it didn't exist right Mm -hmm. and uh so yeah that's i guess like that's the long version of how we got started we just we wanted to make cool stuff that we could watch and again, there wasn't like social media. There wasn't a way to share this. It was like we were making it for us and we would send it to companies and I doubt they ever watched it, right? Like <laughs> weren't that good, but we just wanted to make it because we thought it looked cool and we kind of got to be like the people that we were looking up to, right? Yeah. And that whole situation just like continued well on into as I got older. We, we just kept getting better at the sports we were doing and we kept getting better at showcasing those sports, right? So we would kind of buy some better camera gear and learn a bit more about the editing and that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of always something that I did. And surprisingly enough, actually throughout university, because I was so focused on school, especially towards the end, we were doing a lot. I was doing a lot less filming and a lot less of those sports just because I was so focused on the schooling and everything, but it was always something that I did have a passion for. And I, I always knew the joy that I kind of got out of making something and sharing that with other people. Well, I suppose then if you knew that was, and that had been such a passion to yourself, you talked about, you wanted to be a writer for, um, you know, for, for motocross magazine, but, but why did you ever think about maybe going into video production? It'd been something you seemed already pretty organic and something you could maybe make a career out of even then. Any, any thoughts as to why I didn't pursue that? Honestly, I have I've never even thought of that. Oh, really? <laughs> like even to this point, no, like, I don't know why. I think maybe I just, maybe I didn't really, until I was kind of into the business side of things, mm. I didn't really see the world with a business lens, right? I, I saw it for what it was as a 16 or 17 year old kid. So, um, and you know, like you had mentioned in, in my intro, growing up in a smaller town where you don't have, there's not studios, right? You, there, there's not yeah. any local company that you can look to and say, oh man, look at that stuff that, that those guys are doing around video production, right? It was more, <laughs> we just kind of made this thing from the shelter of our suburban living. So we, uh, yeah, man, I, I, it's funny that you actually asked me that because I had never thought of it. And I, I'm, I'm thinking that the reason it kind of came to mind was because as that toolkit, that business toolkit was developed, I started to see the world in that kind of business lens through, 
the understanding that realistically everything is a business mm-hmm. and um, that can be a really positive thing. That can be a really negative thing, but it is something to understand. And that's what kind of did it for me was I started to understand that what I was good at and what I enjoyed doing also had a place or it also was a business, you know? So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think I was just too dumb to think about that at the time. I mean, and even talking about wanting to write for magazines, like I'm not going to try and make myself sound like I'm like an old guy, like an old, uh, an old <laughs> fogey guy, but you know, that's how we got our content. Like I didn't go onto YouTube and watch, watch, you know, all these pros edits. Like we'd watch one film a year that came out for skateboarding and one that came out for dirt biking. Mm-hmm. But mostly it was through uh, like magazine content. So we would, we had our subscriptions to our dirt bike magazines and they would come in and it was through those words that were, you know, written that that's kind of what, where that inspire, inspiration came from. It was like, you know, being able to tell the story through that medium. And it is funny now looking back, like it's, it's probably as close as I can get in being a storyteller just through a different medium to that original wanting to be a writer. Right. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. You say that I didn't really think about that, but you did kind of achieve what you wanted to achieve. You just went about it in a slightly different way. Didn't you? Yeah. 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 And it's, it's interesting now to be in that, be in that role. And even, you know, I'm sure even if I would have pursued the, the writing, you know, writing and and magazines and publication, that's all a business as well. Right. Mm. So that is something that I would have learned maybe not as directly as taking a business degree, Mm. but I think in time in, in existing and kind of taking in the world, you, you start to learn that everything is a business and it's kind of been up to you to kind of play that game and do the best things that you can do with, with that knowledge, I guess. Yeah. So, so that being said, so how did, um, how did Six Sigma come about then? What was your first, first foray into actually making videos for not for yourselves anymore, but for, you know, for a business, for, for, for a business reason? Yeah. Um, so I think it was, it was probably towards my last year of university. I did, I did my degree in five years. Cause if you remember my first year, was a bit of a wash. Mm-hmm. So the four-year degree was a five-year process, but, uh, it was kind of partway through that. And I had, I had shared maybe a video, like a ski video that me and actually my now business partner, we had made. And I had someone message me and be like, Hey man, like your videos are pretty good. Have you ever thought of like doing commercials? And where did you, where did you put that on it originally? Was that on like a website kind of thing or? No, I think that would have been like Facebook, like probably Mm -hmm. circa like 2011 or something. (laughs) And, uh, he's like, you know, your videos are good. Like you guys should think about it. And unknown to me at the time, the guy who kind of told me that I should think about that, he was doing some like marketing consulting and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And, uh, shout out to Matt and, so I kind of like processed that a little bit and I was like, Hey man, yeah, that would be cool. You know, like, I don't know, maybe. And, uh, so I talked to Glenn about it and, um, like, Hey, you know, what are your thoughts on like, we should try and make some videos. And it was funny because at the time, um, video content in a social media 
realm was still really new. Like mm-hmm. yeah, pe- YouTube was a thing and people were making video content, but it was essentially like living there. And then the odd person would share a YouTube link. It wasn't like it is today where you basically have to share a video on Facebook if you want anyone to see it, you know, like, yeah. um, so anyway, I talked to Glenn about it. He was like, Oh, I don't know. that could be interesting. So I, I messaged Matt back and I was like, Hey man, can we like, can we meet? Can you, let's talk more about this idea. So I think we met at a McDonald's and, uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. 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 Well, he wanted to meet at Starbucks, but there's a Starbucks and a McDonald's right next to each other in my hometown. And the Starbucks never has enough seats. Yeah. And being just a, a rational person versus wanting to be hip. <laughs> let's just go to McDonald's cause there's going to be seats there. So anyway, we met, and he was like, yeah, basically your only trouble right now is you guys don't have a portfolio. Like you have a bunch of ski videos, but how is a business going to see a ski video and be like, oh yeah, we should, we should like let them make our corporate explainer video. Yeah. You know? So, um, he's like, I'm working with this gym in town and I bet they'll just basically let you make them something. And if it sucks, they don't, they, they don't have to share it. And it's like no loss for them, but if it's good, you guys can also use it to kind of promote yourself and go from there. So we, uh, yeah, we're like, okay, that's sweet. Let's do it. Right. We already had, we had enough gear that we could scrape something together. Like we did just, just from your own, like just gathering yeah. some gear for shits and giggles over the years. Totally. Yeah. We had enough cameras that it was like, okay, we had two cameras and probably three or four lenses we didn't have a mic really. We had like an on camera mic, which doesn't produce great audio at all. And we just kind of dropped in. Like there was no business planning. There was no what ifs. It was like, I tell people we were broke students. So the transition to being broke entrepreneurs was <laughs> chill. Like you, you know had nothing I mean? to lose. Yeah. You had literally yeah. nothing to lose at all. No. And it, I was really, really well set up in that sense of, you know, if we got three months into this thing and we were like, screwed and no one wanted to hire us. I just be like, okay, that was fun. And then I would just go and pursue my, and that's kind of what I expected to do, to be quite honest. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's just do this for some, for some fun. And maybe I'll do it part-time on the side while doing an HR career. I guess I was just really fortunate that I never had that opportunity to go back into the HR world because things just kind of took off with Six Sigma. Um, so yeah, we ended up, we, we did that video with the, uh, with the gym and actually one of the clients of that gym saw the video and he was a car salesman and he's like, Hey guys, you know, that was really good. You, you know, what would you charge for something like that? <laughs> I'm like, oh man, who knows? Yeah. And, and looking back on it now, like, do we worked for like on the, we ended up doing three videos for this, for this car sales guy. And it was weeks and weeks and weeks of work. And I think we ended up charging them 300 bucks. But then from there, the car dealership saw it and said, Hey, we want you to basically make these profile videos for every one of our, our salespeople. So now all of a sudden there's 20 additional videos that need to be made. And they're like, yeah, just, uh, you know, let us know, send us an invoice, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And that was kind of, that was kind of the kickoff point of the business when we said, well, we can't just do, you know, we can't do a cash deal like this. 
Um, we're gonna <laughs> yeah. Get- yeah, just leave a manila envelope with this much money at the front and we'll come pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. We're like, we're going to have to, we should, I guess, try this, you know? Again, we didn't really have that much to lose. Like the gear was already, we already owned and um, we kind of just went for it. I mean, I want to go back for a quick sec because I, I, I come back to this idea that you had shot some, some sort of extreme sports sort of videos and stuff like that. You know, somebody's doing some jumps and some, some, some other sick moves and stuff like that. But then I think about, okay, now you've gone to create like a corporate promo video for a gym and I can't imagine it, you know, the, the shooting a gym and correct me if I'm wrong, but shooting a gym and shooting, you know, a motorbiker or what, it's fundamentally a very different approach. And then trying to do the shots for this sales guys. Well, that's a, a very different style. So, I mean, when you guys first sat down without having done any formal experience on this and probably without having put these sort of things together, how did you, how did you start to put, how did you put it together? How did you kind of start to build what you needed to do in order to shoot what obviously must've been good videos. I think that's what made us, that's what brought us some of the success was we didn't approach it that this is how it has to be done. Mm. Right. Cause we were too stupid to know how it was supposed to be done. Right. Um, we brought what well, all the stuff that we had been watching for the last, you know, however long in the bike videos and in the dirt bike stuff and the skiing stuff, we brought kind of that sort of style into the corporate stuff because we didn't really know any better. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was obviously certain elements that you kind of just, we learned through trial and error and we learned through just watching YouTube tutorials and trying to get a sense of how to do it. But um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff that was being created, especially in our area was always done one particular way. Mm -hmm. And we kind of just brought the style and the look and the feel of the stuff that we thought was sweet. And we didn't care that it was a gym or we didn't care that it was a sales guy. We're like, Hey, this, you know, this type of shot looks sweet when they film a skier, like let's film this sales guy walking through a showroom the same way. Hmm. And you know, that resonated with people. They said, Hey, like, look, that, that looks good, you know? So. Yeah. The other thing too is, um, you know, you talked about how you really like to be sort of all in on something and, and, and you want to be the best at it. So you can sort of, you know, really have the respect and hold conversations with people who are the expert in those particular areas. When you started to take on these jobs, was it again, a matter of just like, let's just, let's just wing it. Or were you again, doing this like intense research to try to figure out what do you do? So if you are in those scenarios in the same way that if the GQ blogger pops in or yeah. you're at the moto guy, you're going to have that same ability. Was there that same process you applied to those early days of um, video production? Yeah. I think if we had the time mm. to do the research, we would have, right? Like we, but the problem was we, we actually like, we're so busy doing stuff and like making stuff that what we would do is, if we met with someone and they were like, we want to make this. Well, obviously at that point, the likelihood that we had made something like that was very low. We just would agree to everything. And when we started, that was what we said. Like, if it's video, we're going to do it. Like yeah. we're not, we can't, we can't afford to be choosy. Right. So we just dropped into like every single project that came our way. And we were just like basically bullshitting our way through these meetings to be like, Oh yeah, yeah. We'll just do this and we'll do that. And like, don't worry, that'll be a breeze. And then 
you use that time from that meeting to the time <laughs> that you shoot to figure it out. Right. So I guess, yeah, we were, we were researching, but it was like these very specific scenarios that we had kind of gotten ourselves into. And we were making sure that we could deliver on what we said that we could deliver mm-hmm. because if we didn't take that approach and we were, you know, constantly saying, Oh, you know, we've never done that or we're not sure how to do that. Companies would have just taken their business elsewhere. They would have said, okay, well, we'll find someone that does. And I'm a pretty firm believer that if someone tells you that they know how to do something, there's a good chance they don't, they're just going to sort it out, you know, like, yeah. and I mean, as long as they deliver on, on what it is they say in the end, then that's great. And we were, we were really lucky that we kind of had that ability to go and, and just do the research about what it is we needed to do. And we were able to pull off a lot of things that probably shouldn't have worked. You make your own luck sometimes, and sometimes you just do get lucky. <laughs> so, I mean, this is something I definitely want to come back to in, in, a, in a second. But the, in terms of the dealership said, okay, let's, you know, we want you to shoot a whole bunch of videos. Did you ever kind of think then at that point that, look, maybe this is just, again, going to be a bit of a flash in the pan, but to sort of start to transition away from your HR focus, especially as you rounded that last year of university. I mean, were you really set? I guess my, I guess my question is, were you really set on, yep, there's something here or were you still kind of going along the lines of, man, this is just part of the three months. We'll get a bit of cash. We'll have a bit of fun. And then back to my regular life, you know, once this project's done. Um, yeah, I think we kind of coming similar to that idea of the research. We didn't have time to think about what it was. It kind of just happened and we just were along for the ride really. And, you know, it, it's not until you kind of get so far into it that you're like, holy crap, like this is a business and like people know who we are and like, uh, you know, we, we need employees and all this thing. Like it's not until probably like, you know, a year or two years later that you really can look at it and say, all right. Yeah. I'm probably not going to be going back and doing HR, but that also like, that was never really my plan. It was just, I knew it was something I could fall back to, Mm. but we were just, there was so much going on. And I think I was just so focused on kind of getting while the getting was good. It wasn't that the getting was good. It was just that we were kind of doing a good job and um, basically building a a successful business without knowing what the heck we were doing. (laughs) Yeah. Did you ever have any concerns? I know you said that you, you know, you knew you could fall back on the HR side of it, but I suppose for me where I, I kind of come into the picture of this is I still remember when you came in and you started talking to me that you were actually going to leave your HR job with your family business. And, um, you know, you were going to essentially, you know, go freely pursue this video thing. And did you ever have any concerns at that point, even though you were into the video production that you, in the back of your mind or, or at any point, you were going, shit, like, I know I've got a career here. I know I've got a safe trajectory in this HR thing. I get it. I got it. I'm good. Um, whereas this video thing, while it's building, it's still only kind of starting. Were there ever any, any concerns or any, any doubts in your mind that maybe this wasn't really going to be a thing? Oh, yeah, dude. Like every single day for the <laughs> four years, <laughs> basically, because the tricky thing was it, it starts out with, hey, I have this thing to fall back on. But then, yeah, when you're, when you're like a year and a half into this business and, you know, it's working, but at the same time, you, you don't really, you're making enough money that you're kind of existing, Mm -hmm. but you're not making enough money that like, 
you're like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to retire off this one day. You're kind of just, you're kind of just spinning your wheels a little bit. Um, the problem is, is for every additional day or every additional week or month that we put into the, that, the video business, that was an additional week or month that I was being, becoming kind of separated from all of that stuff that I had learned, all of those networks that I had built and connections yeah. that I made. Right. So it got to the point where, yeah, you're stressing about how the heck am I going to like pay these bills or how am I going to kind of make rent? But now I don't even really have that fallback anymore. Like we're too deep into this and you got to yeah. pull it off, right? You got to find a way to make it happen because, and, and you know what, now that I look back where I'm at now, I was so focused when I graduated that I needed to be in HR and I needed to, it was, it was like my, my thinking was very textbook in how a business runs. Whereas now, you know what, if, if this business today shut down and Six Sigma was no more, I would be confident enough to kind of create a career in some other facet of business and that schooling that I had and my real world experience with this business would lend itself to finding some other way out. Right. Um, but yeah, there was definitely some really, really scary and questionable times in the forming of this, of six Sigma where it's like, we're too deep into this thing that still might not work. And I don't really have a fallback. So we're just going to keep dredging down this, down this kind of road of, there's kind of a saying and it originally I was, it was told to me by a project manager, but I think it applies for entrepreneurship that if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to think about it a lot like driving a car in the fog and you have to be the type of person that's okay with the ambiguity that comes with driving a car in the fog Mm -hmm. because there's so many times when you can see 10 meters in front of you and that's all you get Mm -hmm. and you have to be the type of person that's okay with that right? You don't see the retirement or you don't see the early age pension and you don't see all of these things that come with a more secure kind of lifestyle and a more secure career. But that's kind of, I guess, something I've gotten good at, something I was, I guess, decent at, decent enough at to pursue it to this point. And it's something that I'm okay with is driving my, driving my uh, business in the fog. That, what you just said there in the last five minutes, that, that was really, that resonated well with me. And I'll kind of explain for a sec, because, you know, when you talked about how, when you, when you left university and as you got more focused, you sort of saw that, that your fallback was getting further and further away. I was very much the same way as well too, but I, I stuck with the security. I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to sort of not, to, to not get into the car when it was foggy out, I guess. And I was, I still remember, and, and I, and I love this aspect of my personality, but I hate it too, where that, you know, I, as like 17, 18, 19 year old, I was putting my, my six fifty dollars or my, I was making six fifty at McDonald's and I'm putting that away to retirement. Like it actually, like it actually gives a fuck in terms of like that money as little as it was instead of sort of indulging in the moment. Right. Because I wasn't, I was so worried about that. And then even when I got into HR, I still remember early on going, this isn't really what I want to do, but I was so worried about leaving or doing something else that I was going to be in the same scenario. I would do something else. 
I'd be too far out of it. And all of a sudden I've just completely fucked all this hard work and all these networks and this experience was too textbook, but where I've sort of come to, and it's funny, I had a chat with the business partners I work with around the businesses. We we've said, um, actually Aaron price who have interviewed for the podcast, one of the co-founders of YZ, but he's in the same boat too. It's almost as if, yeah, if the business completely failed, it, it, it matters, but it doesn't really matter because in the failure, there's so much opportunity. And that's such a mindset that I, have only come to, and I'm still coming to now. And I see now that when I, you know, when I did kind of the intro, I talked about the lens in which you look at life and and that lens is exactly that. I think you sort of, you realize that so much longer ago and I've only sort of realized that now. And I just think about my life where I could have been, not, not in a regretful way. I'm very, a lot of gratitude for my journey thus far, but, and the experiences and the things I've been, but looking back, I really do wonder if I had been able to grasp that lens that you had and that I sort of are now starting to have, how different my life could have been and just the, the opportunity that was not had, I guess. Not, I don't want to say it's lost, but not had. But I suppose, you know, with that being said, though, as you sort of started in those early first years um, and you started to sort of just figure it out, what was it like as you started to get bigger and as you started to get momentum? Can you kind of take us through those sort of those, those early couple of years? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, we started out, it was me and my business partner. Um, and when we started, we were working in a, we were working out of my basement suite, me and my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the, um, we were living in this basement suite and it was the transition from university to entrepreneurship of a small company like that, I think is one of the most stark transitions in my life that I've ever experienced and, and anyone could ever experience because you go from, you know, five, six, seven days a week going to this incredible space um, where you see all of your friends, all of these people who inspire you, who are doing amazing things. And then all of a sudden you graduate and not only are you no longer there, but it's not like I went and I was, you know, now at a, at a business where I had, you know, coworkers and people and additional things and new things to kind of experience from a social standpoint. Mm-hmm. It was me, my girlfriend, and then she would leave for work and Glenn would come. And when you're starting a business, you know, we're working some days was some days we just didn't really have anything going on. That's part of it. Right. Those are the stressful ones where it's like, Oh, there's nothing to do today. But then at the same time, you're also pulling these like 14, 15, 16 hour days trying to build this thing. And you don't see other people ever. Right. Glenn leaves, you go back from this room to this room and you fall asleep and that's your life for weeks on end. Right. That was one of the most difficult times in my life. I mean, I don't think I was ever diagnosed with, Oh, I know I wasn't ever like diagnosed with any form of like depression or anything, but you, you hit a wall where it's like, I don't want to exist because there's, you know, what am I doing? You know? And then you add the additional stress of you're not making money. You're not, you feel like you're, you know, it's so uncertain and all these things. Right. So mm-hmm. that was one of the, the biggest challenges that I faced. And that was, you know, the first year after starting this thing. But then finally we kind of had grown to the point where we're like, you know what? And, and growing, I think mentally to the point to say, we got to get out of here. Like we're driving ourselves insane by just 
you and me being alone every day together, <laughs> not not interacting with people. Like I haven't put pants on or like you know, wear my freaking pajamas. Yeah. So we ended up moving from from that basement suite, and we got an office downtown. It was in a shared co working space, or what we thought was a shared co working space. What we actually ended up finding out was it was a place that Glenn and I went to every day, and then a bunch of other people paid rent and never showed up for some reason. <laughs> So it was basically, it was a step up from the basement suite, but we still didn't actually see any other people. It was just still us just like there alone every day. And, um, you at least put pants on at that point. You got to put pants on if you're going to go outside. Right. So (laughs) we, we were working out of that space and probably the next major hurdle or, or thing that kind of happened in our career was we had grown to the point where there was more to do in a day than could be accomplished by two people, period, mm. right? And it was, yeah, you can, you can pull those 15, 16-hour days a couple times a week, but when you're starting to look at the things that need to be accomplished and that's going to be 20 hours of work every single day, seven days a week, something needs to change. So the next kind of major milestone in our business was bringing on an employee. And the thing, like I mentioned, where we were broke students and then we were broke entrepreneurs. <laughs> you, you really get a grasp very quickly on the importance of cash flow and the importance of knowing your numbers when you have a person who works for you that has a wife and a mortgage and a car payment and it doesn't just like work to pay yourself when you pay yourself. Yeah. Um, so a kind of a funny story was that Dan had started with us and was probably maybe two pay periods in maybe three pay periods in. And I went to go and we got the payroll from our bookkeeper. And I, you know, I looked at the numbers and I was writing the check and I thought to myself, oh, I should, I, know I should just double check the bank account. <laughs> and sure enough, there was, we owed him more than what we had. And again, you don't, you don't go to that person and say, Hey, we don't have enough money to pay you. Right. You, you figure it out. I remember going home and, kind of looking in my closet and thinking, okay, what could I sell that would get us enough money that I'm not going to be that devastated? So I think I had like a wetsuit and a wakeboard and, you know, a few other like some ski clothing and some ski gear and stuff. And I like rapid fired it on a Facebook sale Hmm. and made enough money and deposited into the business account. And, you know, we cleared. And at, at that point too, we didn't even have like an, an operating line of credit either. It was just like, once it was at zero, it was, it was at zero. Right. So we cleared that payroll the next day. I think I went, I was like, I was for whatever reason, like super lax with our accounts receivable too. I think just not really coming at it from a business or from like a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. And the next day I'm sending messages. I'm like, Hey, just following up that that check got sent (laughs) really kind of, uh, starting to pay more attention to that. And it was something that I still didn't do a great job of until, you know, probably the last two years was having a real good sense of the financials. And, um, but it's something that I've, I've grown not necessarily to like, but it's something that I, I understand and can make educated decisions about now. But, uh, that's kind of, that was kind of the next major hurdle that we had to face was, holy crap, this person isn't, in it with us on this, like willing to put up with not getting paid, you know, yeah. like this is their, their job. And, you know, I think now has, has morphed into what I, I hope for them is a career and 
um, they're still with us today. Yeah, you, you can't uh, you can't just kind of pay the per- people in hugs. You have to have <laughs> the money there that they can pay their mortgage and pay their pay their house and buy groceries. You know. I, I mean, you know, you mentioned that even though at that at that point you had. 20 hours of work and you had to bring somebody on. Were there ever any instances in that time where you thought about just packing it all in? Because I know we spoke before about you might've had 20 hours of work, but as you were still trying to build your portfolio and, and build up opportunities, it wasn't always high paying work as well too. So, you know, you might've had a lot of work, but the money might not have been there. But I guess, you know, did you have any moments where you just thought about, you know, this has been fun, this is good, but I'm kind of over this broke entrepreneurship and maybe let me try to go back and salvage your career. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of, again, I mean, it's that, it's that concept of, of the ambiguity and knowing how, like for me now to be able to embrace that and know that that next job is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was, there was several times where we weren't developing any leads. And like you say, we were working for, pennies on the dollar. Essentially we were making enough that I could pay rent. And I think Glenn was still working from home or sorry, living at home at the time. And, you know, we, we weren't, we weren't really building a business. We were sorting it out and figuring out how to survive. So yeah, there was several times when you kind of just say, you know what, I think we might have to call this quits because it's not going to work. And then sure enough that day or sometime (laughs) that week, Hey, do you want to, what are your thoughts on doing this? And, you know, then the budget would, instead of being 300 bucks, it was 500 and then it was 750, mm-hmm. you know, and then, then we get a job for a thousand bucks. And at that point you're like, damn, you know, we're going <laughs> to like, we're killing it. And it's, it's all, it's really funny now to think about where we were at. Um, I mentioned that I wasn't, I'm not really that good with the financials and I've, I've learned to be better at it. But another thing that I've really learned, and it even comes back to the power broom story, was that if there's something that you're not good at, it's one thing you don't want to be ignorant to it. Yeah. But it's also stupid to say, I'm going to force myself to try and be great at this when you just know that it's not a doable thing. So I've really focused on if I don't understand something or if I'm not the best at something, just ask for help and find someone to put and build a team around you that are good at it. Mm. And I was really fortunate that I acknowledged, listen, I'm pretty bad at numbers. Let's find someone who can answer my questions and put it into kind of layman's terms for me and help it make sense. So I I, um, reached out to a fellow UMBC alumni and kind of said, Hey, you know what? These are, these are my questions. I need to know like kind of how much do we have to make so that we can pay ourselves and like what just kind of help us set some, some targets, some goals. And we'll get together every six months and kind of adjust those. And once we started to do that, things started to become a lot more clear because I was able to start to say, you know, we need to make this much if we want to hit this next goal. And then once we hit that goal, we need to be kind of doing this and and so on and so forth. So that's, I guess, another disadvantage of starting a business without a business plan or any sort of concept is, yeah, you can be working for 500 bucks and it's costing you 700 bucks to be running, you know, and you don't really know it. It just kind of is all happening at once. And that's kind of where we were at for the early parts of the uh, business. 
You know, I, I, I love that too, that idea that when you're an entrepreneur, essentially you're, and I think you actually are self-described. I think I read this about you, uh, um, Jack of all trades, master of none. Uh-huh. Somewhere about you. But, yeah. that, but that ability still at some point, especially when you're starting a small business where you have to do everything in the beginning, your marketing, your sales, your you know, finance, everything, but having the ability to say, okay, I'm, I'm not really good at this, so I need to go find help. And I think that's a big area that I know I've grown a lot from is, is trying to be a bit more honest with myself about, okay, I'm not really good at this. I still want to understand it, but let me maybe try to go find other people who are really good at that. Or let me try to, yeah, let me try to offload that. But it's been a, it's been a massive adjustment to my ego. And I think a lot of people, especially entrepreneurs as, as a certain type of or a certain person that has certain traits that learn, go towards that, that is that I want to be good at everything. I'm good at everything. Um, but you're not. And like you said, when you walked into your accounting finance class, I had a very sudden realization too, that some people just click with things differently, right? Totally. Your broom story as well. And it's trying to just recognize that and um, find people who can do things better than you and surround yourself with your strengths and weaknesses. And again, still something I'm, I'm still struggling with. I suppose from there, looking at your story. So we fast forward a couple of years um, and you, you start to sort of build your team out. Uh, was there any point that you sort of just kind of went, I've done it, I've got it, I'm there. You don't, you know, you have a little bit more of a sense of um, continuity or success that, that, you know, you've actually built something that's successful, I should say. Yeah, I think this is one thing that... Um, I think a lot of people don't realize when it comes to building something is that you only ever see, you only ever see it as a shell of, I didn't, didn't have anything. And now all of a sudden I'm here. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think of, I think of like musicians, for example, as the perfect situation of, you know, everyone always sees these people that come bursting onto the scene and they're like, holy shit, you know, where'd that person mm-hmm. come from? That person has been grinding for years and years and playing shitty dive bars and, you know, not getting paid properly and all this crap, but they're doing it because that's what they want to do. And, you know, they're lo- very, very lucky and certain things fall into place and now they kind of achieve it. And I'm not, trying to compare myself with a multi-million dollar multi-platinum record label or record um, recording artist. But what I, what I kind of am getting at is that the I've made it, I don't think, I don't think I've made it will ever really be a thing that I think about or I say just because as soon as that happens, it's almost for me, like I'm kind of admitting not defeat, but I'm, I'm kind of like admitting a plateau or I'm mm. saying, you know, this is, this is good enough. And the problem with good enough is that there's someone who's right behind you who's good enough is better than you. Right. So you yeah. kind of have to be, so it's always, it's kind of just come in these, in these small moments or these small little victories, but I can't say that I've ever had a time when I'm like, we're, we're good. We're, we're going to be fine because with the, the building of the business, there's the building of the responsibilities and there's the building of the expectations and of the, of the unknowns and all of those things. Right. So it doesn't matter if you're two man operation and kind of trying to do your thing or you're this, this big company and we're not huge by any means, but we're a big enough company that 
people know who we are and, you know, we have employees and all these things, but the fundamental issues that the two companies face are, are one and the same, right? We have to make more than we're spending and we have to kind of be better than the competition at what it is that we're trying to kind of do. So, yeah, I don't think there has been a real point where it's like, we're good because I still to this day have my good days. And I still to this day have my bad days where I'll have a day where it's like, everything just felt so good. And, and we, you know, we got some jobs or some checks came in or whatever it was. And then two days later I can be, you know, sitting at my computer and nothing's happening. And I'm, I'm just like at a loss for, I still have that stress of, Oh, we're screwed. You know, we're not going to make it. Yeah. I know that really doesn't, doesn't answer your question, but, um, that's no, kind I, of like how I look at it. No, I think, I think that's absolutely perfect. And I've kind of two quick follow or kind of, yeah, two quick follow up questions. You know, I think a lot of people and, um, can resonate with that. You have your good days and you get your bad days, but have you developed any techniques or strategies at this point where if you're having that bad day that you can sort of fall back onto uh, a routine or, or a habit or something to sort of maybe try to recalibrate yourself or to sort of adjust yourself to that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like, I have different types of bad days, right? I have, I have the bad days where it's like, you know, a job fell through or, something breaks or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, you know, I can, I can have a bad day and it's just, it just means that we didn't get a new job. Like, Mm. I guess, you know, we're really fortunate to be in that type of position where it's like, I want to be closing a job, like a new job every day, almost. It it feels like where that's, that's an unrealistic goal, but it's something that I kind of work towards. Um, but then I also have bad days where I'm just like not inspired and I'm not motivated but the general technique that I try and kind of incorporate into my life is um, being able to take a step away from it. And it's really hard and I'm, um, I've been really focused on trying to do that. But if I'm just like not feeling it or I'm, you know, sitting at my computer and it feels like nothing's really going right, mm-hmm. I'll just leave, right? I'll like, go dirt biking or I'll, I don't know, go do some like random errands and do some running around and not try and pressure it or not try and force it into Mm -hmm. working because, um, yeah, you're just, you're basically trying to kind of get a square peg into a round hole at that point. Right. So if I can go and take my mind away from it and come back fresh, whether it's needing to be kind of get rejuvenated or just, whether it's needing to take the time to wait for someone to feel like they have something that they want to talk about making. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's something that I'm, I'm really conscious of. Um, and it's, it's really challenging, right? It's, it's challenging to feel like you're not slacking. Mm-hmm. Really it's just about kind of rejuvenating yourself a little bit and like, yeah, I guess recharging the batteries. Yeah. Cause I, I've seen that from a lot of the chats with the various entrepreneurs is that you do strike that balance where you're either, you're either working really, really hard to get business to fill the pipeline or you're really, really busy servicing the pipeline and trying to satisfy clients. But there never really seems to be this like natural rest period. It's kind of all on one or all on the other and kind of back and forth oscillating as you sort of need it. So but the other question I wanted to ask too, and, and this might seem, this might seem a bit, 
odd given our conversation so far, but you know, you, you're six, seven years into to this business now and you're still going through, you know, this period of, you know, this oscillation of businesses growing and still knowing that it's competition and it's, you know, doing great work, but why do you do it? Why do you, why do you keep going at it? Is there, do, you, do you ever think about maybe that, you know what, it's not worth it. Maybe it's time to just tap it in and maybe to go back to something else. It's a bit more chill or a bit more secure. I mean, why do you, I guess, put yourself through this sort of ups and downs that this lifestyle and this role gives you? Because it doesn't suck. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a, that's a dumb one, but because so since starting this business, then this is like a ridiculously cliche thing to say, but people, you know, when people say, if you do something that you love, you'll never work another day in your life. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I, um, for a, for a while I was, I was teaching at a college in, in the town here. Um, and I was teaching project management and I, up until that point in my life, before I kind of was started teaching and had done it for a few semesters, I had forgotten what it felt like to not want to go to work. Mm. And then I remember they scheduled me this one semester for like a Tuesday morning class. It was like a three hour class on Tuesday mornings. And dude, I'm up every day at like 6am, 5am typically. And these Tuesday mornings would roll around and I was like, dude, I don't want to get out of bed. This is insane. And it was only on Tuesdays and it was only because it wasn't, exactly what I wanted to do. And, you know, there's some flexibility in the fact that, you know, I have flexibility in how I was going to teach that class that day, but there was still that obligation to be there at that time and do it. And Mm -hmm. as soon as that obligation isn't there and it's me working towards what it is that I am building and I am driving towards. Yeah. As cliche as it sounds, I'll put up with not knowing if we're going to be all right, if it means that in that moment, in that now, Mm. I am all right. You know, I am motivated and and like just stoked on what it is that I'm doing. Yeah. It wasn't really until I got that feeling that it really hit home for me. That was like, no, what I got going on is what I need to be doing. So yeah, you still, you do, like I say, put up with the days of uncertainty or not being excited or, you know, kind of being bummed out, but I can kind of, I can just, come back to that if I'm ever feeling that way and think, holy shit, like, no, things are, things are great because I'm down to go and do whatever it is. If it means that it's building and driving towards kind of building this thing that we've created. Mm. No, I I love that. I absolutely love that. And I think that, I think what you just said right there, if anybody is listening to this and is in that sort of that, that entrepreneurial mindset, if they can, if they can genuinely sit, with what you just said and truly be comfortable with that, like really deeply to your soul and your core of your being okay with what you just said, then I think people are in a really good position in terms of wanting to, but I've met a lot of people who I think take that entrepreneurship path for kind of the wrong reasons. Um, Right. And I think what you said there is, is super critical because there's, it's not all super easy. I mean, I've had, I've had the pleasure of working with, you know, both speaking with a lot of entrepreneurs now and in this business now and, you know, it's not like you just launch your business and customers all of a sudden knock banging down your door. And, you know, two, three years later, you're trying to figure out what color Bentley you want to buy and, you know, which vacation island if Richard Branson's is for sale. It's, it's, it's genuinely start of 
a, a path and a journey and it's not a destination, I suppose, in itself. If that makes sense. Totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I suppose with that being said, um, that is a really good transition to sort of the next section here. I mean, you are said seven years on, you guys have been doing an incredible job. I know you've got a couple other projects that you're working with, not only just corporate production, but there's some documentaries and some other stuff that you're working on as well. I suppose for yourself, as you look forward in the next, the next chapter, chapters of your life and, and the life of Six Sigma, I mean, what's sort of the future hold for you? What are you excited about or what are you working on or, or what's just really got you jazzed up at the moment in terms of the future for yourself and the business? Um, yeah, well, I think the biggest thing for us that we've kind of been able to create for ourselves is that, um, we, we want to basically position ourselves when we first came in, I guess, as a company in our, in our town, we were kind of the, the small fish in the big pond, what we perceived as the big pond, right? Mm-hmm. We were a pain in the a pain in the ass to the few companies that could, could, were kind of doing things the way they'd been doing it for a number of years. But in that time, we've grown now to that, that role for us now, if we look at ourselves as a community-based business, we're the big fish, right? We're, we're the ones with the big target on our backs. Mm-hmm. And that's not where I want to live my life because it's stressful. You have mm-hmm. these like smaller companies that are making um, content that, um, you know, are kind of gunning for you. So our focus moving forward is really about continuing to get ourselves into bigger ponds and be that, be that, that, uh, team that can come in, can deliver on, on what it is that, um, needs to be done and kind of, yeah, be a thorn in the sides of the bigger players. And then eventually the bigger players and, and so on and so forth. And, the other thing that we've been really fortunate um, is that because of the fact that we've been busy and we've been able to, you know, build a successful business that, um, you know, is kind of sustaining itself now, we're able to, I don't want to say pick and choose because still probably 90% of what comes our way we're making, mm-hmm. but um, we have been fortunate enough to say, you know what, let's, let's figure out and find ways to make our own things. Mm-hmm. And how do we make our own things with a business mindset coming back to that idea of this toolkit that I have? Um, how do we, how do we make this attractive for people that want to sponsor? Like what can we give them um, out of this thing that we're making? So we've experimented with some documentary work, um, some, branded content that we are actually going to companies and saying, Hey, we should make this, you should sponsor it. And this is why. And, um, those are the types of things that really excite us, I guess. Um, I think coming from an HR background when it comes to building a business is also something that has been really positive for me. Right. Mm -hmm. I acknowledged early on and, um, that yeah, me and Glenn aren't master numbers people. But what we can do is take what we are good at. Uh, you know, like Glenn is really, really smart when it comes to marketing and branding and building something that people want to be a part of. And I come from a, from a HR standpoint. So how do we build a team and build a company with that as our main focus and, you know, get people wanting to be a part of our team and wanting to, 
go that extra mile when it comes to, you know, having to stay late on set to film something or stick around mm-hmm. to kind of get a project done. Um, I'm really, really lucky that the team that I work with has that, that kind of buy-in into the culture that we've created and stuff. So um, that also is another piece that I look to continue to build is how do we, how do I, I guess, come back to my HR roots a little bit and continue as, as we learn more and grow more and kind of get more sustainable, how do I continue to provide a, a really bitchin' place for these people that are on our team to work? I mean, I think one of the craziest things that I remember from university that I think about now is I think it was in maybe the first finance class that I ever took. And the instructor was very explicit in saying the number one goal of a business is to create a return for the shareholder, Mm. right? Increase shareholder value. And, you know, being a first or second year, you're writing that note down and thinking, okay, that's how that goes. And that is such a bullshit way of trying to approach business, right? If that's who you want to be, great. Be, Be that person. But for me, my job as a, as a business owner and as an entrepreneur is to use the tools and, and the um, resources at my disposal to make the lives of our team better, to make the community a better place to, to, be, to live in. Without sounding cheesy, you want to leave a positive impact on the world. And if you can make enough money to do that and, and provide for your family and provide for those on your team, that's like the number one goal. Mm in my opinion, versus I don't need to like, I don't need to make an exponential amount of money in order to, for me to feel successful in what it is that we're doing, as long as the impact that we're able to make is a positive one. Yeah. I I love that. I think that's an often overlooked, from my experience, at least often overlooked aspect of HR is it's not just about, um, you know, creating a business, creating wealth for yourself, but the the exponential impact you're able to create for the people around you, the community and whatever you're passionate about is it only grows faster and bigger. And that's something I really appreciate about what like Mikey's done at Vino Mofo. And that's why I love that this conversation has kind of come full circle from him because he's fundamentally realized the same aspect as well too in that. Um, but he's doing it as a head of culture and you're doing it as, as an entrepreneur of a video production company. Right. But that's sort of the holistic, um, viewpoint and that that overall sort of arching objective to work towards is yeah it's it's implicit across everything you know one thing too uh, i've just made a few notes just from our chat and you know i really started off today to talk about how you you've done a 180 from hr to video production but you know i actually don't think it is a 180 i really don't i think it's an extension of you and i i noticed you i said the 180 from hr but in the broader scheme of things, it, it's exactly, you're doing exactly what you should be doing. You already had this sort of, you're already shooting videos. You were loving that. You know, you went to school, you got a business focus or a business lens and some acumen with an HR focus. And the video production actually just seems more of a, more of a continuation of the line and really a convergence of these two paths. Whereas I saw HR as the path of video production, something else. So it's, it's for myself, it's, it's really, you know, really kind of comes together that you're exactly where you need to be and you're doing exactly what you should be doing, I guess. 
So with that being said, and uh, keeping on time, because I know that you have uh, some more uh, microbrew with your uh, with your name on it here shortly, going to uh, transition into the rapid fire questions if you're ready. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So as always, these questions can be as long or short as you want. Um, you know, no pressure there. And if you uh, if you need any help in terms of me to stall for time, uh, don't hesitate to uh, let me know. But Sure. With that being said, jumping into the first question here, and it is, what book has most changed your life? And I'd love if you can place this as to where you read it, and what context did it change everything? I'm not a huge reader, but I am also, I guess I'm going to take the time to read something. I'm really, again, coming back to the phase, and I'm going to go all in, and it's going to be done <laughs> in like a week, you know, if that, a couple of days. So I think one of the books that kind of changed myself was actually something that was a fairly recent a fairly recent book that I had read and me and my me and my girlfriend we had, we were on a trip and we went to a place called Haida Gwaii which is it's off the west coast of British Columbia and it's an 8 hour ferry ride from the west coast out to the Haida Gwaii islands when we were there there was just something that was so pure and so un untainted I guess by that place. It was, it's to this day, the most beautiful place that I've ever visited. A huge element of that made that place so beautiful was the Haida culture, the Mm -hmm. Aboriginal culture that was there. And I didn't grow up necessarily super in tune with Aboriginal culture. Um, Didn't really have a good understanding of it. And nor do I to this day really understand the complexities of it, but there was something about that trip that, led me to want to know more or to have a better understanding about kind of the relationships between the Haida people or, or Aboriginal, Canadian Aboriginal people in general with the rest of the country. So it was actually on the ferry ride back. I, I was super bored. It was an eight hour ride back and I was kind of going through the, uh, the little bookstore that they had there. And I I ended up reading a book and it was called the inconvenient Indian. Hmm. And it was written by an Aboriginal man named Thomas King, who um, took a really honest, non-academic approach to explaining the relationship between, between Aboriginal peoples and other peoples in our country, Um, actually in, in kind of North America. And I know that it is uh, additionally, it's, it's, it's something that I'm sure, in Australia is, is kind of grappled with as well. Mm. And that book for me signifies not necessarily my will, my wanting to understand that sort of stuff. But for me, it just kind of signifies the type of person that I had unknowingly started to become and also wanted to become more of mm-hmm. in that sense that are basically acknowledging that you basically know nothing and <laughs> that ignorance is, is a detriment, but that ignorance is also an opportunity to recognize that and do your best to, to kind of learn more about a subject and understand these, these incredibly intricate and, and troublesome problems that we face um, without just kind of painting it with a broad brush as someone who doesn't know anything about it and mm. kind of making your decision from there. Right. So um, I mean, the book resonated with me just because of how informative it, it felt and how, how much I was able to connect with it because mm-hmm. of the way it was written and everything. But I also think it just was kind of a good moment in my life where 
um, I think up to that point or in, in the years before that point, I guess maybe I was um, a little jaded or a little felt like I knew more than I actually did. And uh, I kind of just acknowledging that I didn't know enough about such an important topic and then setting out on a path to try to learn more about it. And to this day, I still, it's a huge element about, uh, you know, in my career, in, in telling the stories of Aboriginal culture, which I'm still very hesitant to even approach because of how uh, important it is and all, all that sort of stuff. But mm. uh, it's a huge part of what it means to be Canadian that I don't think enough people really acknowledge. And uh, yeah, anyway, that's my like long winded rant about this book, but uh, it's, it's very, very interesting and really well, well written. It's called the inconvenient Indian no. by Thomas, Thomas King. Yeah, that's beautiful. No, I think that's um, look uh, and just speaking personally too, that that certainly resonates as well with me because I think I, I would probably chalk myself in the same category as well as knowing far too little and probably being far too ignorant. Um, so, uh, yeah, no. Hello, Amazon. Look out. You got another book order coming? Yep. Um, so who's been the greatest influence on your life growing up? It could be somebody you didn't know or maybe some other prominent figure. I'm going to be not the prominent figure guy, but I think <laughs> um, I would say probably the biggest influence um, – on my life is likely my parents um, and, and probably my dad just more so in the sense of from the entrepreneur entrepreneurship realm. The thing that's really interesting about it though, is that um, not only did I, did I look to my dad to say, what is, what does that life look like? Mm. Um, and, and what is it about that that I want to try and emulate and, and replicate, but what is it about the things that he's done that I want to avoid or learn from or grow from because, you know, my dad is an incredibly smart um, and savvy business person, but he also had a lot of troubles in a lot of different areas because of his unwillingness to acknowledge when he wasn't right or acknowledge when, you know, maybe someone could do that particular thing better and kind of give up, give up that, um, bit of control, which, you know, would result in him having to really do all this like bullshit work that he probably wasn't the best suited to be doing, but kind of just wanted to maintain that. So my dad was super, super influential in that sense of, he taught me what it meant to work like your life depends on it. Mm -hmm. Because as an entrepreneur early on, that is the case. I mean, for him, even more so, I mean, he, he left school when he was in grade nine and started driving a dump truck is the definition of like what it means to be kind of self-made. And he also taught me the value in being that Jack of all trades. He would, even though, you know, he's almost retired now, but I know at the time, like when, when I was finishing up working for him and you were working for him and it was kind of expected as, as the owner of this fuel distribution company, you're kind of supposed to be at lunches and golfing and whining and dining clients. And yeah, no one can find him, and he's out changing like the lights on on a tractor trailer, you know. So that was a that was a a huge eye opener as far as what the kind of lengths you need to go to and how hard you have to be willing to work. But it was also really good to see the the issues and the struggles that came with that. So I was able to basically take the good and build off the bad mm. to hopefully 
kind of create myself into an entrepreneur that can build one step further in my career. No, that was, that was beautiful. I, I got to give, I got to give Mr. Gordon Hamburg a quick shout out as well too, as um, in, in my own story, I've talked about this on a previous podcast episode, but um, I, I always had this inkling of wanting to be an entrepreneur. Um, and it started with my best friend's dad, uh, Brian James, and that really carried on. But I think Gord, working for Gordon, having that opportunity to work with your father was incredibly important to me at that time, because in my mind, once I'd started on that path and through the university, I was looking up at the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musks and the, you know, all these other insanely successful people. And I was trying to emulate myself off them. But what I quickly realized is that, and part of why I started the Y2 podcast is these people are incredibly poor to learn from because a, um, you know, they're not really written in a way to, they're not meant to feel pain and feel fear. And there's an inevitableness to their circumstances, which can be incredibly daunting and incredibly depressing as well in terms of I'm not them. So how can I ever be successful? But Gord was an incredible, incredible experience working with him because you really see what, you know, an entrepreneur takes the good and the bad and the grind and everything that's willing to do. And I remember looking and having the opportunity to work with Gord and going, you know what, I'm, I'm here and I see the shit he has to deal with. He probably, there's probably a lot of shit I didn't see, but I still saw a lot of the shit that he'd have to deal with, you know, rolling in on a Saturday for some stupid reason, he'd rather be out elsewhere and going, I see the bad and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, I could see myself having to deal with that. I'm not daunted by it because I also see the opportunities that he was able to create for himself, um, for the family and obviously yourself. But more importantly too, I saw what he's able to create. And I see what you're creating and you talked about the community and the opportunities for your staff as well, which I obviously directly benefited. He gave me a shot and I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that. But seeing how he was able to not just impact his life, the impact of his life, his family, but he was able to impact his 50 plus staff and their families and the incredible, um, yeah, the incredible impact that provided in the broader community. So big shout out to Gord as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's probably not listening to this. He's probably on a beach somewhere a little bit more. Yeah. Or I'll send it to him and he'll be like, I don't know how to download it. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Just trust me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what gives you a disproportionate return on investment of your time and energy? Not working. <laughs> no, I, um, and I don't say that uh, in a, and like go home and like, I, I don't mean that in not being at work. Yeah. I, I kind of alluded to that idea that if, if I take the time to invest in myself, if I spend an hour before I go to work going dirt biking, which I do pretty regularly, I'll wake up, you know, I'll wake up at five and load up the bike and I'll just take off and go for a trail ride and sweat and kind of allow myself to not think about whatever it is that I'm thinking about uh, when it comes to my work, that hour that I spend there pays off tenfold when I can come in and, and be fully motivated for what it is that I need to do. Not always be being focused on work means that when I am here and I am ready to get down and dirty with it, it, it uh, seems to go a lot smoother and I seem to get a lot more done and accomplished yeah absolutely i think i think that's something that probably more people need to really practice just try give it a shot because it's it is pretty incredible what it can give you what mantra or inspirational quote has most changed your life and why and i'd love if you remember where you place or tell us where you first heard it rather yeah um i was trying to think of like a one-off 
thing. And there's, there's lots of kind of quotes and, and things that I reference to in particular contexts, but outside of one particular one, I, I wouldn't mind just kind of talking about someone who I, who I have read and I, I listen to. And it's a guy by the name of Alan Watts. And I think a lot of people have seen or heard his work in some like videos and stuff that kind of circulate through social media. And um, he was a, he was a philosopher in the kind of late when I'm trying to think like around like the 1900s, I guess, Mm -hmm. but he, he was one of the first people to kind of bring um, Eastern philosophy and and thinkings to a Western audience, I guess. And um, I don't necessarily have a quote, but he has, he has a ton of lectures and, and he, he just thought about so many different pieces and elements. And it's funny because you, you listen to these lectures that he was giving in, you know, 1920, 1930 that are so relevant to what we're dealing with now as a society and as, as a workforce and all these different things. And he gives a really good lecture and speech about the concept of, of being acknowledging the present and um, being happy with the present. And I kind of alluded to that in that, I don't necessarily have a, this was the moment because the thing is you can never, you're never going to reach that. Right. Mm. When we got done university, that was supposed to be the end. Or when you got done high school, that was supposed to be, you made it. Mm. And if you're always his, his teachings and the way that he talks about it is that if you're always making it to that next step, the end is never really achieved, right? You never really get to that, that zone. So he talks just about the idea of being happy in the present, acknowledging what you have in that in the present. And for me, that's something that I try and do every single day where, you know, I just, I just, just try and take it all in because it can be taken away from you, you know, in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as much as it's important to think about the future and think ahead, you can't, you can't really do that successfully if you're not acknowledging what you're happy about in, in the present, I guess. So mm-hmm. that's a very convoluted, poor way of delivering his message. But um, Alan Watts is the name of the guy. And, and uh, if you haven't listened to him or, or kind of checked out his stuff, I definitely recommend it. It's, it's uh, something that I always kind of come back to. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of on top of that too, I mean, I, people, long-time listeners of the YT podcast will, will be well familiar with this, but two of the biggest things I advocate, I think that you've given me a disproportionate return is the uh, mindfulness and gratefulness. And you sort of through that kind of alluded to your sort of own interpretation of that, but just being very aware of the present, what you have, where you are and being so thankful for everything. And then the gratitude extending off of that, just to really recognize how much you, how much you have and how much it's, you, you want to continue to work forward and grow and, and get more and have more and be more and whatnot, but still in that present moment, the family, friends, the health, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard not to feel incredibly lucky even having what we have and, and everything just seems almost gravy after that. Eh? Yeah. yeah. Um, if you could give a 20 minute Ted talk or some other speech on something you're not well known about, could be a hobby or interest, what would it be and why? And I have to admit, I'd imagine for all my guests, this must've been the hardest one. To you must've had the hardest time because what I know of you is you're uh, and what we're learning about you is you've got a <laughs> lot of eclectic broad interests that you are very knowledgeable, of. but anyway, back to you. 
Um, yeah. So if it's something that I'm not known for, I guess, I mean, the pro- that's one of my problems is I, I'm like known for all of these different things, but, um, I guess if I, if I was to remove myself from the, from the video standpoint or from the entrepreneur standpoint, and I could give a Ted talk, um, I'd, I'd give a Ted talk like about dirt bike athletes, which sounds like super stupid, but, uh, I remember being so frustrated growing up as a kid because everyone would always hear, Oh, you race dirt bikes or you ride dirt bikes or whatever. That's whatever. You just sit there and you twist the throttle. Mm. And there's been like numerous studies that have, that have kind of been done that demonstrate that, uh, you know, motocross athletes are essentially like the top tier people are essentially some of the highest level athletes in the world next Mm. to maybe only soccer when it comes to their ability to regulate heart rates, um, and have, you know, you're, you're basically in a, in a motocross race that's 30 minutes long, the average rider's riding at a heart rate of between 175 and 200 beats per minute. for 30 wow. So I would give, and the problem is I'm not an expert in the physical, the physicalities of, of what it takes to ride a dirt bike. But I think if I could get the right research and stuff and, I don't know what that would, that wouldn't really contribute to much, but maybe the, maybe the TED conference is about, uh, you know, unknown physical traits or something, but extreme sports. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. It's bitching. So love it. Love it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and last but not least, I'd love if you can tell us about your morning routine. Dude, I have a dialed morning routine nowadays. So my wife, my wife works a job where, um, she gets up at, at, uh, we get up kind of at five between four fifty and five every morning. She, uh, she teaches kickboxing and, and she also is a, uh, she works at a job that just, she starts at six. So we get up early and, um, my big thing in the mornings is I do a good job the night before of kind of trying to prep myself for what's going on the next day. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't, I mean, I'm not doing like some people I know write lists and do all this stuff. For me, it's enough to um, just kind of have a look at my calendar, prep myself mentally for that's something that I'm going to be working on the next day. And I find that that kind of just like puts my mind at ease for, for that night. And then in the mornings, I, I kind of can wake up knowing what it is that I'm, that I'm trying to achieve. But dude, I just kind of chill out. I, I, unlike a lot of people, I don't, I don't keep my phone next to my bed. Um, it's out, it's at the other end of the house. So I'll usually kind of wake up and this is something that I guess also you ask the question of what keeps driving you, like what motivates you, right? So I'm coming, I guess, back to our, to our initial story in the initial interview, but it's so cool that I have a job and I'm, I'm working towards building something that on more than one occasion every week, like probably a couple times a week, I get to wake up and look at my emails and not say, holy crap, like look at all this crap I have to deal with. Yeah. I get to look at my emails and be like, hey, look, this X Games gold medalist wants to film <laughs> with me like in two weeks from now, you know, like that's the type of stuff that I get to wake up to. So anyway, um, I'm always excited about kind of checking my emails and, and, I don't, I'm not a big on the news because I think it's kind of like, it's a wash, mm-hmm. but I kind of just try and get a bit of a sense of what's going on in, in, uh, in the world. And then I'll, I have a coffee. Um, 
I know that Australians are very, coffee is a huge part of their lives. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. So I try and um, treat myself to a nice cup of coffee every morning. And yeah, I kind of just use, use the morning as a way to, to kind of prep myself a little bit. It's, it's really the one chance that I have each day to have some alone time, I guess. Once I get to work, it's everything's go, go, go. And everyone's kind of got what it is that they're working on that's coming towards me. So I kind of, yeah, just take it in and enjoy, enjoy the coffee or enjoy a Canadian tire catalog and just kind of, you know, read that new flyer and look at all the tools that I don't need to buy. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's coming also back to that idea of just kind of investing in myself a little bit. I use it as an opportunity to not, to not be thinking about what it is I have to do while subconsciously kind of prepping myself for that day's battle that's about to come. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I say battle, it's, it's in a very good way. It's in a way of like, I'm ready to take it on, you know? And then, yeah, I'm usually at work by probably seven, seven thirty, And I use uh, the first couple hours to kind of accomplish the things that I'm not that stoked to get done. Yeah. But, uh, if I can get that done and if that's the worst part of my day, that's great. I don't like to let stuff linger. So, and then that's usually, that's my morning. I usually have another cup of coffee cause I'm a bad person. <laughs> no such thing as too much coffee, my friend. No such thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jay, this has been incredible. This has been a, a conversation that's been personally a long time coming. Um, I certainly came in today, like I said, with that idea, but, after having our chat and getting to getting to know you a lot more than, you know, I thought, I thought I knew you really well, but it turns out there's a lot of things I didn't know, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and for me really comes full circle in terms of your story and and the questions I had, but just for people uh, listening, where can they stay up to date about your story? What are your social handles and how can they stay in touch with you and and keep up the journey of the six Sigma? Um, Well, you could follow me on Instagram, but if you do that, you're just going to get a bunch of me dirt biking photos. You have the coolest handle in the world though. So my, my handle, my personal handle is in no way famous. And the reason it's in no way famous is because in like my second or third year of university, everyone's like, you got to get Twitter. Like Twitter's so sick. You should get it. And I was like, Dude, Twitter's for famous people. Like, that's dumb. I don't need to do that. And then I don't know what it was for, but essentially they're like, well, if you're going to do this, we need you to have a Twitter so that we can like... So I I made my handle in no way famous. It basically was a way to be like, this is stupid. (laughs) And I never really used Twitter at all, but when uh, Instagram kind of started to become a thing and I was a bit of a late adopter to it, I didn't really... I was using Facebook or whatever and I was like, whatever, I'll just make it in no way famous because, I don't know, it's kind of funny. And uh, it's kind of been... I love it. But no, probably the best way for people to actually follow the story of the company and and kind of what we have going on would be through our Instagram or through our Facebook. We're at Six Sigma, but we spell it... How do you spell it? Yeah. yeah, We spell it the number six, I-X-S-I-G-M-A. Yeah. so Six Sigma on Facebook or Six Sigma on Instagram. That way, the best way or uh, the best thing about that is like, it's just great trying to communicate people what your email address is. If you don't have a card, they always are just like, oh, Sigma Six or <laughs> six, six Sigma. And you're like, oh, goodness. <laughs> so, 
um, yeah, I'm sure you'll have a link or something up on, on, uh, when you post it, but yeah, we, we got lots of cool, like behind the scenes content and it kind of gives someone who's not, um, in that, in that, uh, world, a bit of a look at, at to what my day to day is. Yeah, absolutely. I just got to, uh, just to sort of go off something you said too, is, is following your Facebook page is, is awesome. You guys have one of my favorite videos and I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. You're going to have to go to the Y2 podcast page and I'll, uh, I'll share it from the Six Sigma page. So you can watch this very awesome video that is completely unrelated to, um, you know, corporate production videos, but uh, uh, bloody hilarious, funny to laugh. It's my go-to. So you can check that out. And then obviously make sure you follow the page for all that sort of stuff. But uh, Jay, thank you so much for your time again. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I look forward to catching up uh, probably sooner than later. We'll go for a round two because I know there's a, I know you're working on a lot of really cool stuff. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that goes. But mate, thanks again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.